one news talk station. FM 96.3 and AM 620. WVMT Burlington. More cowbell, please. Welcome back to the Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here on this Monday morning, July, January. I said about to say July. January 29th. Just a couple, three days left in January. Um, welcoming to the show this morning is Colby LaMarche, who writes a column now called Burning Sky, and he's got some pretty interesting articles. Good morning, Colby. Good morning, everyone. Um, so, Colby, let's go. First, I want to get your take. You've written a lot of articles, uh, interesting stuff that we'll get into. But first, and I know you've written some articles about the mayor's race. Mm-hmm. Give us your take on the mayor's race, which is five weeks from tomorrow. Well, to me, there's really two important issues. And I think it's on the mind of other Burlingtonians as well, which is housing, um, housing affordability and public safety. Um it's somewhat difficult for me because I look at the two candidates and a very clear choice for public safety is Joan Shannon, I think. I think she has a clear record on public safety, supporting public safety. Um, she was a strong voice in 2020 for attempting to prevent the crisis which we are in right now. But on the issue of housing affordability, um, I'm sort of stuck because I don't see either candidate proposing things that is going to house Burlingtonians. Now, for market rate development, um, I see massive growth under a Joan Shannon administration. But for those who are homeless, for those who are poor or low income, unfortunately, I don't see quite a bright future for them, not only in Burlington, but in wider Vermont. Now, would you say, though, by adding all those units, it, it, I mean, in theory, when supply goes up, you know, the, the price comes down. Right. But, but uh, your contention is it wouldn't, would it not happen quick enough or it wouldn't be... What would you like to see on on the other side of it? Yeah, well, my ideal situation, uh, which has not been mentioned by either candidate, is a uh, somewhat new development in America. We like to think that uh, we're sort of isolated from the reforms and policies of other countries, uh, but we're not. And one thing that I think we could try is European-style social housing. You know, we have a lot of vacant properties throughout the state and even in Burlington. And it's time that we stop relying on the private market to provide something which it very obviously can't. We see that with City Place, right? We see uh, an expansion of market rate developments in City Place and an overall decrease, essentially, in affordable units. We need to make sure that people in Burlington can afford their housing. And if that means government needs to facilitate that right for people to get inside a home, then that's what we must do. And that is sort of the progressive thinking that we need, but I don't think it's—I don't think it's going to come from the progressives nor the Democrats. So, when you say European-style uh, socialist housing, how does it work? So, for example, Britain after World War II, there was massive devastation in Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, homelessness was on the rise, um, and the government committed to housing everyone after World War II. They built wonderful social housing complexes, which worked. They built community. They were affordable. And they were streamlined. And they were humane, most importantly. We just see in Vermont that the governor and a, and a tripartisan group of lawmakers want to renovate hotels, push private developers to renovate hotels and put families who are homeless or struggling with economic hardship in those. Solutions like that are not viable. That is a dog kennel. Motel rooms, 300 square feet of living space, is a dog kennel. That's not how we treat people. So if government needs to build housing then it must build housing. And in Britain, it worked until Margaret Thatcher gutted social housing. I think we need to try it here in America, and I think we can do it right. Interesting. 
I hadn't heard about that. I mean, a lot. Right. Of, you're absolutely right. Most people say it's either one or the other. There's no in between. Right. And and that's uh, an interesting concept. It is. It's quite new, and not a lot of people <laughs> have talked about it before. But I think it's something that could work. Now, Kobe, you have you been attending a lot of city council meetings? I watch virtually. Yes. Okay. There, it's it's probably a good idea sometimes too not to be in that room. So. <laughs> I was going to ask you a question, but let's uh, defer to the college. Let's, let's, let's call go to the in. phones first. Uh, good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning. I, I'd like to remind the guests that government controls since the 70s nearly every aspect of real estate in the state of Vermont. If you want to build something, if you want to site something, um, no matter what you want to do, including rent something in the city of Burlington, government is completely involved. Um, and, and because government is involved, um, what's happened is the same thing that always happens. Um, the cost goes up, and there's a shortage. Um, it, it just seems to me that um, government's done, done enough, and um, less regulation here is we, we've tried um, extraordinary regulation in Vermont, and this is where it's it's gotten us. It's gotten us an average cost of what four hundred fifty five hundred thousand dollars for a three bedroom house um, in a state where you know jobs can hardly afford that. Um, enough's enough. Uh, I think it, uh, isn't it time for it just to stop? Um, Colby? Well, I, I actually agree with the caller. Um, and in an article which I wrote called The Misspent Millions, available at burningsky.substack.com, I responded to the tripartisan group's proposal, um, and gave my own thoughts. And I, I had two main thoughts. One, I agree with the caller that we, we need to simplify bureaucratic pro- processes and overhaul Act 250. We do need that private development in the state for those who can afford it. It fosters diversity and competition in the housing market. So we do need less red tape. But at the same time, we can take unprecedented steps to open social housing and make a real investment in Vermonters. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Uh, good morning. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, your guest name, Toby. What was the last name? Forgive me. Colby LaMarche. Colby LaMarche. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Mr. LaMarche, just a reminder that the European social housing model in each and every country that has such, that uses the construct you've put forth to us here, requires that you provide proof of employment, a deposit, a bank statement, and or a credit record, and that you make at least a certain, or be below a certain income. Those are the requirements to qualify for the social housing in the European countries that you're referencing, such as Holland, England, France, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and I'm not sure about Germany. But the point being that I'm not sure that model is going to work for the people you're thinking of. I, I, I think it is. It absolutely is. And, you know, if I ever run for government, if I ever run for public office, I'll be happy to put out a very clear and detailed plan. Um, but for the moment, I would just say to you that, um, in my mind, social housing in the United States, specifically in Vermont, would be mixed income. So it would obviously, a portion of it would serve those most vulnerable in our communities struggling with poverty. Uh, but at the same time, we do need to build the cohesion of economic backgrounds. We cannot isolate the rich from the poor. We cannot isolate the middle class from the poor. We, we are struggling together on all various issues, and to live together uh, would be something greatly needed. 
I think what the caller too was kind of alluding to is a lot of the a lot of the the programs that we currently have uh, require either such significant poverty or uh, that you know um, y- you almost get penalized for working. Yep. And so I would think uh, in 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 what you're describing, um, it would it would take a shift to say, look, you you will will provide this assistance, but you've got to step up to the plate. Right. And for whatever reason, I don't know, and maybe you can elaborate. Why do you think it's broken here? Why do you think that, as opposed to having an incentive program, we literally have? Well, if you do that well, we're not giving you anything. Right. Where did where does how did that evolve? And, and I do think it would work against anything like you're talking about. I think the caller's pointing out that we we'd have to have a systematic shift uh, in, in most of our benefits programs. Well, it's a fantastic question. And, and what you're talking about is the benefits cliff. Yeah. Whereas those receiving benefits, if they make more money, they just lose money in assistance. So they're never gaining. Right. Right. And so it does take a fundamental rethinking of how we treat poor people in this country, because poverty, no doubt is a choice. It is a policy choice that we make. Let's grab another call for you, Colby. Then I want to get into another one of your articles. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yes, I have a uh, kind of a question or what have you. Comment about this, uh, the council homes um, in England versus in America. We have a system here called Section 8 with co-mingled housing, like you're talking about mixing everybody together. And what they're finding a lot of problems with this co-mingled housing for elderly in these homes in the same buildings, what have you, is rampant crime and drug abuse. I'm not saying everyone, but what I'm saying is that when you co-mingle people and you put people of different, uh, different viewpoints together, you've got to have a plan or a backup to take care of the more vulnerable of those people that are going to be in that situation. And it sounds like you just want to put everyone together, which is, very confusing to me because I think some folks might need a little more help um, with their issues than others. And what are you going to do with all the old people, too? I'm just curious. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would just want to make this point, too, that I envision a system where if you are in poverty, if you are struggling with economic hardship, um, you will find great support. You will be able to get over that benefits cliff. You will be able to liberate yourself because this is about liberty. For me, poverty is about liberty. When you are in poverty, you are deprived of liberty. So it's incumbent upon us, especially as Americans, to want to guarantee that liberty for everyone, including poor people. So under a system where you're poor, you would be given the best support anywhere in the world, but you would have to choose that liberty. You would have to commit to the guidelines but if if you did accept the help, if you followed the guidelines that were there, you'd you'd be all set essentially. That that's a system that I envision. We're talking to Colby Lamarsh this morning. He is he writes a column on what's called uh, Burning Sky on Substack. So uh, he's an interesting guy. He's got all kinds of opinions that are all over the place. I I, I highly recommend it. You, you, uh, the the two on Substack that I I wait I, when I see it coming in my email and, and uh, quite often diverging opinions, but. Colby LaMarche and Rob Roper, both the <laughs> local Substack uh, columns that I just, uh, it's great. I, I really appreciate do. Rob and yeah. what he does, too. He, very, very good. Well, yours make you think about things differently, too, Colby. I really like what you do, and, and uh, you, um, 
the phones are popping because I want to talk to you about the. I don't think a lot of Vermonters realize that the one that you talked about, the Highwaymen. Uh, <laughs> well, we're going to get into the last call we wrote right after this call. All right. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning, everyone. Um, I, I really appreciate the uh, thinking of this young gentleman. And what I want to ask is how would this be paid for? Every time I hear government is going to supply this or government is going to supply that or build this or build that. It's always the taxpayer that suffers. So you're talking about liberty and all this other stuff, but you are going to take from the people who actually are making it and aren't poor, the middle, upper middle class, and you to give to these people who are uh, lower class, unfortunately. But how, how does that work? Because I work my butt off, and I'm sick of paying for stuff for other people. I want to pay for my own stuff. Have a great day, gentlemen. Cool. Good question, Colby. I, I hear you. And, and honestly, I, I don't want to take your money away. <laughs> That's not at all what I want to do. Um, a part of this fundamental rethinking of how we do things in this state is, and, and as I titled my article, The Misspent Million, since 2016, Vermont has spent well over half a billion dollars against homelessness. We spent two million a week just to cover hotel room expenses since COVID-19. This is money which the state has, either from its general fund or from the federal government. You're not talking about additional expenses. You're talking about shifting the money. Complete shift of where we put our money, because we have the resources now to solve these issues like poverty and homelessness. We simply need to reallocate our money and be genuine and clear to Vermonters about uh, where it's going. All right, let's get into some other stuff you've written, Colby, because we only got a few minutes left already. Um, Colby, you wrote an article, I think it's the last one you wrote, was about the, I know you, you watched the last meeting with the uh, Palestinian resolution, Israel-Palestinian resolution, where the progressives uh, wanted to pass this resolution, put it on the ballot. Right. Uh, it's connected to, of course, uh, Jason Eaton and what happened with the shooting of the three Palestinian 20-year-olds. Uh, talk to us about that. Your, this article is t- t- entitled, Our City's Big Lie. And I know what it focuses on is the fact that there has been all this attention paid to that it was a hate crime. Or was it a hate crime? Right. And that is the question. Is what is what Was it a hate crime? You know, we were told... By President Biden, we were told by Attorney General Merrick Garland, we were told by Mayor Moreau Weinberger and State's Attorney Sarah George that this was a hate-motivated act. But ask yourself, was it? Because it has since been revealed that Mr. Eaton is in full support of Hamas. And I quote, the notion that Hamas is evil for defending their state from occupation is absurd. Mr. Eaton tweeted that uh, days before he engaged in the shooting and that comment was aimed towards Becca Ballant, a tweet by Becca Ballant. So I think we really need uh, to rethink where this conversation has stemmed from, because we've had resolutions now, we've had community action now, but I think it all comes down to that shooting, which, which we've lied to ourselves about. We must honestly reflect on Mr. Eaton and recognize that it most likely was not hate-motivated. And, I mean, what Sarah George says was that it was, I, I watched that press conference, was that it was a hateful crime, regardless of whether it was a hate crime. Um, but, um, 
I mean, obviously, we all condemn that crime, but why do you right. think there's so much center on that it was a hate crime that he shot them because they were Palestinian when, as you quote, uh, you, as you point to the quote that he's made, it didn't sound like it would have been based on what he said about the about Hamas. Right. Well, in my article, I talk about um, self-deception. Um, it's sort of a complicated psychological phenomenon, but it can happen even in organizations and communities where people will deceive themselves to uphold a status quo. And certainly, I believe the left has an obsession with hate. They do. Um, and I'm a leftist myself, but I don't have an obsession with hate. It's this obsession with hate and this constant want for there to be hate in the community. I don't want this to be a hate crime. I don't want this to turn out to be a hate crime. But unfortunately, I think there are people in Burlington who want this to be a hate crime. They want this to be a reality, that what Mr. Eaton did was a hate crime. But but, but as we know from Mr. Eaton's statements and the, the staggering... Uh, drag that the hate crime investigation has taken with with no public comment about it from anyone um you can't help but wonder where is this conversation going to lead us when will we admit the truth when will we actually together as a community have real dialogue about what happened you know uh it it, it it's it's hard to argue with your logic um particularly with this piece and i i I uh, I will also find myself in an odd position because I'm not a big Sarah George fan, but I am impressed that at that press conference when they were pushing her and, you know, she got calls from Washington and everything. Mm -hmm. They were pushing her to scream hate crime. And she said it was a hateful act. Yeah. But we have no evidence of a hate crime yet and we will investigate it and wait. So I applaud her for being able to kind of push back against that massive tidal wave of this is a hate crime. Right. And I don't understand other than I, I do believe there's a motivation for division. And I think that this is all part of it. It's a divided, a divided group is easier to control. Absolutely. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Well, good morning. Our government is pretty wasteful. It's incredible. They already get enough money to do all this. So I just heard the NPA and Burlington, one of them, four and seven. We're just giving seven hundred thousand dollars in grant money to do something for the neighborhood. There's roughly seven thousand to ten thousand people that live there. They should just divvy the money up and give everybody ten thousand dollars so they can improve their home and their living conditions. That's just a statement. So, question. Sorry, Kobe. No. Uh, quick comment on that. We're getting late on time here. Yeah, um, I think, as I said before, that our spending in Vermont needs a serious review. Um, and that goes all the way down to the local level. Uh, for example, I'm thinking about uh, DEI in Burlington, REIB rather, um, and how we could use those funds um, from the Racial Equity Office to promote progress and justice for everyone. I think REIB is quite ex- uh, exclusionary. And I think we need to, for example, with REIB, expand it to help everyone. And and doing that is focusing on class-based politics, economic justice, where it is not a race-based politics, it is not an identity-based politics, it is a return to what we know we need, which is class-based justice. Kobe, uh, we're just about out of time. Give me a quick comment on your article you you wrote about injection sites or they're calling them overdose prevention sites now right uh and your title was called your title was an an affection for injection an affection for injection and and that's absolutely what vermont has i think what we're going to witness with these injection sites coming in 
is going to be continued harm against Vermonters. And as I mentioned in the article, there are numerous young people across America suing state and federal governments um, for their role in climate change. And it only makes me wonder that if we begin to allow people to inject drugs under supervision, when will their families or them themselves sue the state for active harm, allowing them to harm themselves? Any state which allows their citizenry to harm themselves and have that be endorsed by the state is extraordinarily concerning to me, not to mention we already have conversations in Vermont about furnishing drugs to citizens called safe supply, essentially giving fentanyl out to fentanyl users to make sure that they don't over it. It, it, it is boggling. Set your hair on fire. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. You might uh, disagree with him on one thing, and you might di- agree with him on the next issue. Colby LaMarche uh, telling it like it is as he sees it. And you so, can find. Oh, go ahead. Andrew. Yeah, no. Uh, go ahead. Give us the. Uh, you can find Colby Lamarche. Uh, you can just Google it. Go to Substack and subscribe, and you'll the email comes right to your email. And I read it every time. Colby. Every Saturday, burningsky.substack.com. Can you give us a glimpse? Of what's the next article, or do you know yet? I honestly don't know yet. It's usually a late thing. I'll be there Friday night, and I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then I'll, I'll figure it out. Who's yeah. going to win on March fifth, five weeks from tomorrow? John Shannon. All right, there you go. There we, that was. Decisive. Thanks, Colby. Thanks for coming in, Colby. Appreciate it. And keep it up. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Check in with Fox News. You know the routine. Amanda's got the headlines. We got.